Welcome back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Wednesday, September 18th, 2013, and this is podcast number 345. Just briefly in the beginning here, uh, let's get this out of the way. I am way behind on email. I have really never caught up this year on email between the uh, the early traveling that we did and my wife and I did in January, February, March, back in there. And then uh, going to Pork Fest, and then going to the um, uh, you know the Libertarian Convention in uh, Pennsylvania, going up to Michigan, and then the recent vacation that we took with my family for a family reunion. I just the whole year I've just never really been caught up on email, and now I'm really behind. If you've sent me email questions and it seems like I'm just you know, ignoring them, uh, bear with me. I'm going to try to get caught up as quick as possible. There's just, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff coming through. Uh, I did want to mention really quickly that over at Amagai Metals, I got a notification that they have uh, a new product, Silver Bullets. They literally uh, look exactly like um, 45 ACP ammo, except it's a solid silver um, you know, basically a, a, an ingot or a whatever, not an ingot, but uh, it's a silver round, essentially, but it looks like a forty five caliber uh, bullet. Anyway, um, follow the links at badquaker.com over to Amagai Metals and check it out. Oh, there's another thing over there that I saw that uh, I thought would be really cool as a gift. It's these tiny little silver, a one gram silver heart with a rose on one side and then all the information on the other side, you know, like uh, the weight and, and 0.99 silver and all that kind of thing. But on, on one side is uh, is this rose right on this this heart-shaped silver bar. And it's a one it's one gram, so it's like, I, I can't remember, you know, and this will vary day-to-day with the, as the spot price changes, but it was, it was less than $2 for, for one gram, uh, in this heart-shaped, um, silver, uh, bar. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful thing. You know, if you have, like, if you have an anniversary coming up, I did a sort of a variation of this with my wife one year when it was uh, a very important anniversary. Um, I gave her a gift a day for, I can't remember now, I think it was like our 10th anniversary or something. I can't remember which one it was, but it was something that was I knew was significant to her. So for like 10 days before the anniversary, I gave her a gift a day. And um, and something like that would be really cool. You know, um, you could give like uh, if it's your fifth anniversary, you could get, get like five of those little hearts and give one a day for each day before or whatever. Anyway, that was just a thought that I had that would be really cool. Um, I also wanted to mention that we have Bitcoin's uh, uh, a Bitcoin button 
on the Bad Quaker website that's titled Bitcoins for 2014, and I want to thank uh, the people who have already donated in that. That's our uh, that's our uh, uh, effort to pay for the website and everything for the coming 2014 year. And courtesy of BitcoinChipIn.com, that's who supplies the uh, the software for that little uh, for that little widget that goes there that you can uh, use to uh, to donate bitcoins. Okay, so that's the business of the uh, of the day, and let's get into the actual podcast here. Um, before I get into the podcast, let me make a quick quick disclaimer. There's going to be a lot of words that I'm using that I don't normally use in, in typical day-to-day speech, so it's very likely that I'll mispronounce some. Uh, some of these words are going to be in German. Some of these words are going to be in Elvish. Some of these words are going to be in Numenarian. So, uh, you know, um, it's a bunch of geek stuff. So bear with me. Now, also, I'm going to be talking about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, stuff. And if you're not really into that, if you're not into fantasy literature or whatever, stick with me. Because I think the way I'm going to tell this story, I think even if a person is not really big in the Lord of the Rings and all that kind of thing, I think you can still um, gather from this podcast some information that's going to be useful for you. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's necessarily uh, a requirement that you be a Lord of the Rings fan or a Tolkien fan or, or a fantasy literature fan in order to get something from this. So the title of today's podcast is The Fall of Barad-Dur. The Fall of Barad-Dur. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was an anarchist. He was a philologist, a professor of Anglo-Saxon and professor of English literature and English language at Oxford University. He was also a fantasy writer. He had a tendency to tell the same story over and over in a different way in order to make his point. If you read the Silmarillion, if you read uh, all the way through the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you re- read through uh, several of his other um, fantasy works like that, mostly that went unpublished during his life, if you read through that, you'll see certain themes that just repeat over and over and over. Uh, Tolkien created a world that he called Middle-earth, and he populated that world with a variety of creatures mostly having their origins in ancient uh, northern european mythology so even though you know he was brilliant and he uh, he came up with a lot of this stuff on his own to a large extent he was just repeating uh, much older stories and maybe he put them together in different ways and whatever but but really he was just bringing back um, pieces of Northern Europe, cult, Northern European culture that had been lost over the centuries. Uh, Tolkien had a tendency to put in his stories moral or political lessons, but you know he would become agitated when people tried to apply his stories to like current ongoing political events. Like for instance, people would try to use his stories in talking about Hitler or World War II, or they would try to try to use his stories as as examples for the Cold War. And that really irritated him. He he spoke against it on several occasions. Um, Tolkien's stories, very much like those of ancient origin, are meant to be understood outside of the current po- politics and the current political atmosphere. Um, they're more of a warning to the greater evils of power that inflict the, the minds 
um, of the morally weak who seek to dominate others. That's really more the purpose in what uh, in Tolkien's stories. One literary tool that Tolkien used uh, over and over, actually, was the, the the strong city as an image of a government, and the a, a tower as the seat of that of the power of that government. In the story Lord of the Lord of the Rings, um, he uses these great strongholds: Isengard, the Hornburg, uh, Minas Tirith, and uh, Barad Dur. But in the story, only in this in the Lord of the Rings story, only Barad Dur uh, really matters. The others are are a distraction, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Isengard was this uh, circular fortress that was built around the Tower of Orthanic. Um, it was guarded by deep waters and by a, by a strong series of walls. The complex was built by the Numenorians, which was literally the men of the West. And uh, the Numenorians had built this to guard the fords of the uh, Eisen River. And a ford that's that's kind of an antiquated term. We don't we don't talk we don't really use that that much anymore. But in the olden days, a ford in a river was an area that you could cross it uh, on foot or on horseback. It was an area that was of a river where the river widened out and was shallow. And it was usually like a uh, like a gravel bar or a rock base underneath it, and you could uh, you could go across the river without the need of a ferry boat or a bridge or whatever. So in the story, this this great river, uh, the Eisen River, um, had this area that you could easily that an army could pass across it. Uh, in, in the ford, and so uh, Isengard was literally built there to guard that ford against uh, invasion in, in that area. Uh, the older name of Isengard was uh, Angernost, and was it was commonly referred to in Tolkien writings as the West Guard. Instead of calling it Isengard, it would be called the West Guard. Um, again, this complex was built by men to guard the West. But Isengard became corrupt and became a seat of evil. Uh, the story of Isengard is one of power corrupting the incorruptible. The the individual that ended up uh, controlling Isengard had first come to uh, to Middle Earth literally as almost an angelic being and was there to do good. But yet the power of being seated in a place like that slowly ate away at his mind and he became very corrupt. And, and so Isengard became the, the, uh, the seat of, of that corruption of that individual. And this is an image of what power does to an individual, even an angelic-like uh, person. The, the power uh, corrupts them like that. In the story, the evil powers of, I- of Isengard are defeated and destroyed by creatures called the Ents. They're uh, the fabled walking trees. And um, through through the power of their roots and through the use of floodwaters, um, literally Tolkien has uh, natural forces destroying um, the works of of the men of the West. That's that's kind of the imagery that we have here with Isengard. We have this this powerful city. Uh, well, it's a it's a more of a fortress. It's not really a city, but this this powerful fortress that has existed for you know a very very long time, very vast amount of time, and it's held against all kinds of armies and everything. But it becomes very corrupt, and literally the forces of nature. 
uh, tear it down. The men of the West built it, but the forces of nature tear it down. Now, this is really important, um, and I want to emphasize this aspect that humans didn't destroy our Isengard, because in the story, the humans at that time were distracted from the main point of the struggle. The humans were busy fighting the Battle of the Hornburg, a fortress that didn't really matter in the long run. The heroes uh, were following a great man, and uh, they were almost destroyed at the Hornburg because the Hornburg was nothing but a trap for them. The Hornburg being another, you know, great fortress that had been built. Um, they only survived by way of a miracle. Uh, if it weren't for divine intervention, no humans would have survived the Battle of the Hornburg. But remember what I said, that nature destroyed Isengard. Uh, another city is uh, Minas Tirith, or the White City, and this was a city fortress that was built on a series of terraces uh, up on the side of a mountain. It was literally the city built on a hill or city set on a hill. It was the capital city of humanity in Middle-earth. By the time uh, that the Lord of the Rings story takes place, Minas Tirith it was a shadow of what it had once been. As the, the seat of human government, it was almost abandoned. Um, once it was an impregnable fortress, once it was the diamond accomplishment of the men of the West, but by the time that the story takes place, it's more like a jewel in a broken case just waiting to be plucked. Um, at the time, it was guarded by a demented, self-delusional, nar- narcissistic tyrant that in the story he's willing to sacrifice his own children for his glory and for his purposes. Uh, the Battle of Minas Tirith, um, it seems to be the decisive factor in the struggle of good and evil. But that's a lie. It's a trick. It's a deception. The Battle of Minas Tirith, like Isengard and like the Hornburg, doesn't matter in the struggle of good and evil. The struggle of good and evil is decided in the hearts and in the minds, uh, not on the field of battle and not in the seat of government. As the story of the Lord of the Rings progresses, in many ways, Tolkien retells uh, Wilhelm Reichard Wagner's story of Das Ring der Niblungen. Wagner's Ring is a saga that takes about 16 hours, and it's told uh, by way of four operas, usually performed over a six-day period. The separate operas, and I'm going to use English because my German is so bad, but the separate operas are the Rheingold, uh, the Valkyries, uh, Siegfried and Twilight of the Gods. The saga, uh, told by Wagner or by Tolkien is, uh, it's a moral lesson that can be summed up as power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then the secondary lesson of either of these tales is that good and evil are not decided by warriors or by kings, but, but by the pure hearts of those who choose to do what's right no matter what the circumstances are, and no matter what the consequences are. In Tolkien's telling, the ring possesses the power of uh, to rule Middle-earth. No human can be trusted with the ring of power. The ring cannot be used for good, even by the pure of heart, without causing some kind of unseen damage to uh, to the individual who's trying to use it. The very existence of the ring drives the desire to possess it, um, the only way the power of the ring can be defeated is to destroy it forever in the fires from which it came. 
in uh, in the battles defending or destroying the great strongholds of Isengard and the Hornburg and Minas Tirith, the ring is absent in each one of these. Uh, it's not present in any of those locations. And uh, the ultimate fate of humanity and of the ring are not decided by the valiant blood of the warriors that's shed on the battlefields. And it's not by the, you know, uh, it's not decided on the walls of the stronghold. The sacrifices of the of wealth and of blood and of agony, even to the death of the heroes and of the villains, don't change the outcome of the fate of the ring or the fate of humanity. Um, but there's one stronghold that I haven't mentioned yet. That is uh, Barad Dur, the Black Tower. Um, but first, let's just recap here. Isengard was crushed by the forces of nature. The Hornburg was defended to the death by legendary heroes and would have fallen if not for divine intervention. And yet the Battle of the Hornburg and those who died there meant absolutely nothing in the long run. The fields of Pelennor that stretched out before the city of Minas Tirith were littered with the bodies of brave warriors who gave their lives to save their city. Um, the white walls of Minas Tirith were stained with blood of the dead heroes, and the streets of the city flowed with the blood of the innocent. But none of those sacrifices mattered. They meant nothing. Only the ring mattered. After the battle of Minas Tirith, the armies of men marched towards the Black Tower. The men had absolutely no chance. Um, they marched to absolute certain death. The leaders knew that fact, and they and they often do in these situations. But as is usually the case, the rank and file have no idea they're being sacrificed uh, by their generals. The foot soldiers are simply fodder to be fed into the fires of war for the glory of the state. The individual sacrifice of the warrior means nothing. The broken families... Uh, that'll go fatherless, the mother's empty arms that'll never hold her son again, and even the shattered mind of brave warriors uh, that survive the fray, they mean nothing to the state. Power is the only thing that matters. Barad de Ur uh, was the Black Tower. It was built by a spirit entity um, who was also a shapeshifter, and his name was Saron. Uh, according to Tolkien, in his book, The Silmarillion, um, Saren was an offspring of thought, and the one ring was the opus maxim of Saren. The ring of power contained his life essence. Saren himself was the manifestation of the desire to rule Middle-earth, and the ring contained that all-encompassing passion for power that drives men to dominate each other in a lust for more and more power. So in Tolkien's tale, as the armies of men march towards the Black, Pow the Black Tower uh, and their ultimate defeat, a separate act of faith destroyed the Ring of Power. No act of government could destroy the Ring. In Tolkien's story, the hobbits were a simple, peaceful people who lived without government and without aggression. They had no desire to rule over others, and they wished only to be left alone to live and trade in peace. Now, two of these hobbits were instructed to throw the ring of power into the fires of doom. When, that, when this happened, Sauron's power in Middle-earth vanished, and the mighty tower of Bradadur came crumbling down. Bradadur... Uh, and Saron himself were the product of faith, as Tolkien put it, the offspring of thought. Uh, remember, 
Either the either of the hobbits could have used the ring to rule Middle-earth, and on several occasions the hobbits were tempted by the power, but Tolkien allowed the ring to fall into the fire and dissolve. I'm going to break here for a minute. Let's throw in some uh, commercials for our sponsors, and I'll be right back. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free, and it's easy. Amazon has great prices, and in most cases, you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can even get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of the purchase price. It won't cost you any extra, but you will be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Energy, vitality, clarity of mind, and incredible immune support. The awesome power of nature is now in your hands. Hi, this is Sean from One With Nature. Our herbal formulas contain some of the greatest botanicals from around the world, and they are ready and willing to help you achieve your goals. Visit us at onewithnature.com. That's W-O-N, withnature.com. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the break. In Tolkien's Tale of Middle-Earth, I see a repeating story of the struggles of governments and their continuing corruption and failure. But I also see a vision of the fall of the state. Um, now, when Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, he still held on to the notion that maybe the right government wasn't so bad. Um, but by the time that Tolkien wrote to his son and announced that he had become an anarchist, Tolkien had matured and seen the folly uh, of hope in government. In the long history of mankind, governments have risen and empires have developed. But one consistent theme in history is that empires fall. Uh, at first, the empire sends its armies out to shed the blood of both the guilty and the innocent while absorbing the wealth of foreign lands. But back home in the empire, the workers become lazy and dependent on the spoils of war and the free bread that's supplied by government. At some point, the systematic corruption and ineffectiveness that go hand in hand with bureaucracy begin to drain the system. Um, the cities become filled with the dependent and the productive withdraw into the shadows. Things start to break down. Bridges start to crumble. Roads deteriorate. Dams and aqueducts lack maintenance. Crime becomes a growing problem. Uh, logic would dictate, and the wise always advise as such, that if the empire is to stand, it must stop its foreign aggression and cut its spending to sustainable levels. But the empire can do no such thing. That's like asking water not to flow downhill. Those people who steer the empire have lost their ability to understand wisdom. The lust for power has taken their soul. Uh, it's just like with the ring in Tolkien's story. No, no one can touch it and remain unchanged. And just like in Tolkien's story, no one can dwell in the towers of government without being corrupted by that power. Near the end, as the empire begins to die, the armies will come home. At first, the empire uses the armies to stop the riots and crush the rebellious, whose bellies are no longer stuffed with free government bread. But the situation gets worse. There's more rebellion, and there's less bread. 
Now, at a time like this, some will say, rise up, now is the time. We have to march on Washington. Um, march there and die, but you won't touch the ring. You see, the ring is not in Washington, D.C., and the ring is the only thing that matters. The present empire will crumble. Uh, it won't be pretty, but it won't be the end either. The seats of power and the great towers always see uh, the destruction and they see the blood. But it's not the end. In the last stages of an empire, those in power become desperate. They make the worst choices possible. They often attack a more powerful upcoming empire. The U.S. may do that. Uh, they may attack China or India or Brazil or someone. They'll likely blame internal strife on some scapegoats. They'll seek someone to blame for their problems. Some minority group will be the cause of all the problems. Um, there will be a cleansing. The troublemakers will be rounded up. This is how it always works. But no matter the effort, the empire will crumble. The city will fall. Faithful believers in the state will look for a great man to save them. They'll look for the, for the king to return. Or others will want peace and security at any cost. And I always think, you know, uh, in comes the new boss, same as the old boss. Those of us who understand and expect this process can't be distracted by it. We have to maintain ourselves and determine to see the destruction of the ring. We cannot be distracted by what happens on our left or on our right. We have to forge on knowing that the only thing that matters is the destruction of the ring. Remember, the state is the offspring of thought. It is faith in the state that maintains the black towers of government. Washington, D.C. is not the problem. It's a distraction. London is not the problem. It's a distraction. Neither Beijing, Moscow, nor New Delhi are the problem. None of those are the ring. The problem is the state, that mythical offspring of thought that justifies aggression by the few on the many. The state, that fantastic religious belief that a small gang of thugs should dominate and steal from the rest of us. Folks, it's the state that must go back to the fires of hell from whence it came. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you, folks.